Hi, Allison and Mary. Um, I noticed that in your latest Cecile episode that um, you definitely avoided saying some of the French words because French is notoriously very bad and hard to pronounce. Um, for future reference, um, Cecile, she calls her grandfather Comtère, um, and her parrot is Cochon. Um, and honestly, so <laughs> our other main character in this series, if you're saying her name with a French accent, would be Marie Ross, which sucks to say. Um, so usually when I talk about her in my American accent, I just call her Marie Gross or Marie Glass. Um, I actually have an aunt, and her name is spelled like Marie, but we call her Marie. Um, so I kind of use that same rule. Um, anyway, I love the podcast. Keep it up. I love American Girl. Um, and thank you. Bye. I just want to respond to this anonymous listener and just say, you know, excusez-moi. Just sweet. So, you know, as they say in French, podcast. podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, bonjour. Bonjour. Uh, you know, we're trying. we're trying. It's a mess. We're trying. It's really messy. Before we get into it, in case you couldn't, you know, understand us because of our French accents, you know, in the previous part of this segment, my name is Maddie. M- Maddie? No, wait a second. Je m'appelle? No, I really did listen to how she said how to say Marie Grace. Oh, God. All right. Never mind. Welcome to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Maddie. Wait. Just sweet. No. I don't think that was right. Wait, go ahead. I'm just, I've. Just sweet, Alison. So, part of the fierce wow. feedback that we received is that it's not so much Marie Grace as Marie Grace. And listen, I do think she was trying to do us a solid because here's the facts. Like, you actually do look up pronunciations of other words not in English. I 1000% do not. <laughs> like, I've just committed to that lifestyle. Maybe it's my own form of rebellion. I don't know what's going on with me, but I received those comments. Like, did I have any sense that those words were pronounced that way? Absolutely mm. not. I'm I'm calling in. I'm checking in on this episode <laughs> as a person who's had an ungodly amount of Spanish education who cannot speak much Spanish. And I'm having like flashbacks right now to you and I taking our Spanish exam in grad school. And we had to translate what I believe was a 19th century agricultural text. So, you know, just like stuff we would find in life, right? And remember he picked the text that purposefully had a word that no longer exists. And he was like, oh, yeah, I just like throw that in to see what people do with it. And I will say this. You know what? Do I put on every single resume that I have translation proficiency (laughs) and Espanol? See. Wow. And I don't mean if. I mean, yes, because depending on where you put TikTokers who are like, you know what? You can write any content you want. Like go to copy.ai and like a robot will do it for you. (laughs) Like that's how you've been empowered by technology. And I respect that at this stage of the game. I'm a linguist in the way that Emily in Paris is a linguist. (laughs) That said, myself to watch that show. No, I love Emily in Paris. It's a beautiful delight. Really? Yes. I didn't know you'd seen it. I, you know, incidentally consume some media in preparation to talk about Marie Grace and the orphans. I was going to say the whole title in French, but I don't want to show off at this point. Wow, okay. You don't want to flex on me in front of all the listeners. And, and, you know, thank you for that. I didn't know that we were engaging Emily in Paris for this. Like, I'm behind, I guess. So I will have to (laughs) dip into that. I mean, wow. I, I have not been watching that. Should I be? So Emily in Paris is not great, but it is good, and it will pass the time. Okay. Much like the two egos I ate two minutes before you logged onto Zoom, wow. were they fantastic? No. Was it my way to celebrate Mardi Gras, which is the day on which you know, we are recording? Yes. It's Fat Tuesday, and never forget, like, we did, I ate some candy before we recorded, so, you know, I'm not living my best life, I guess. The egos sound good to me. I would accept some yeah. egos right now. But every year on Fat Tuesday, I always think about my grandmother. Every year she would tell this story. It's not related to Mardi <laughs> Gras. It's not related to Lent. Nothing related. She once brought me to get my bangs trimmed. I was eight years old. The woman cutting my bangs was like, oh my God, you're so beautiful and fat. 
she meant this as a compliment, meaning mm. I seemed healthy. I had like a, an internal spiral that didn't really get, you know, visual until after we left. And I was like, oh my God, she called me fat, whatever. And my grandmother was like, she's dead to me. Like without even understanding the facts or the contents was like, she's dead to me. And then one of my brothers was like, maybe she meant P-H-A-T. And then I had I to, think she did. I, I had think she to did. watch my brother explain what that acronym means to my grandmother, who was like, that's disgusting. She's a child. But anyway, like every year, my grandmother was like, it's Fat Tuesday again, like P-H-A-T Tuesday. I think fat is beautiful. I sure. think these are all wonderful things. I think you would receive that comment very differently in 2022. Well, honestly, yeah. And, you know, this is just a, like a podcast I'm really enjoying is maintenance phase, which is a really great evaluation of, you know, body. I thought you were going to say our podcast. No, I mean, of course. <laughs> Isn't it weird to recommend our podcast? Like, do you, is that weird? The way you said this is a podcast I'm really enjoying, I was like, yeah, I mean, these five minutes have oh, been wow. good for me, too. I just I didn't <laughs> I didn't know where I think we're both a little hopped up on on Mardi Gras. I've had a lot celebrant of Yeah, I mean, content. I'm drinking a polar seltzer like I'm living my best life over here. I'm kind of on one because of this book. But yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I was just to finish my thought, like maintenance phase, if anyone has not listened to it, has a really great exploration of like body politics and you know fat culture and like fat is a non-judgmental descriptor and i've really learned a lot from it but it's also like super funny so yeah i mean i i would hope my younger self had i had access to things like this podcast would have reacted differently but my grandmother was just like blind loyalty so i could have told her anything and she'd be like yep she's dead it's over goodbye i think she did mean ph i mean i have to tell myself like what if I just want to be fat, Mary, like P-H-A-T. Yes. I choose that I in 2022. Can. Oh, my God. You know, we needless to say, I've been listening to the voicemails, forgot that was happening. And I've really enjoyed listening to all of your messages. So thank you so much, everyone who's called us. <laughs> and Anonymous, dear Anonymous, like, you made my day. I laughed. And, you know, I feel shaken. I'm recalling how little <laughs> effort I put into my foreign language training. And maybe I need to re-download Duolingo. Like, I don't know, math. maybe you got to watch Emily in Paris. Just take that way out of this. I don't know. What's the I future? think part of her message is that she does not speak French. And so Emily is not exactly a great role model. But I don't really see Marie Grace learning a ton of French either. Do you? Let's be honest. Um, I don't really see that happening. She had a different education plan than we have available to us, which is you okay. know, she played with orphans and they taught her yes. French. Or they magically recovered her French within her. So it's like she didn't find her in her child. She found her in her French speaker. Yeah. Again, I respect that. We don't have that. I don't think we can do that part. So Muzzy taught me. <sighs> wow. Je suis la jeune vie. Bonjour. Je suis le grand Muzzy. Je suis la jeune vie. Yes, that's French they're speaking. And no, these children aren't French. They're American. And then Moulin Rouge, the film, taught me a phrase that we won't repeat on this show. You know, I got to say, I've been to the Moulin Rouge. I have too. I was like really disappointed by it. Yeah, I was like, this is super cheesy. I was like, this is like the love boat, but I love the love boat. And I was like, ah, this is bleak. I wish I hadn't. I wish I didn't know. Can we pivot very briefly? So there is a really cool character in this book. And I think that we've just sort of decided 11 years after the fact that this character is named after our newest, youngest friend of the show. Yes. Oh, my God. In a shocking, in oh a shocking twist of events. Shocking twist of fate. So imagine my absolute surprise and delight <laughs> for someone that we both knew from college had their first baby this week, um, Beatrice, uh, AKB. And I heard from her dad that he was listening with her when she was days old to our last episode. So she might be on record as our newest, youngest listener of all time. But then to read this book and I was like, Sister Beatrice, like, <gasps> yeah. Sister, sister, indeed. Yes. So we're very grateful that the stars aligned and we got to say officially happy birthday, Beatrice. And yes. very exciting times. Very happy for them. Congrats. Welcome to the world. Welcome to the OGAG family. And, you know, we hope you learn French at a young age so you don't turn into us and or Spanish or whatever language you want. <laughs> no judgment. And then you yeah, can I teach don't. me because I'll still be in the dark at that stage. I don't see the Duolingo sponsorship coming in anytime <laughs> soon. We just don't send them this episode as like no. a, as a sample. Okay. You know, 
I'm ready. Let's, you know what? And I have to say this. I just think I have to say what comes natural. Uh I think Marie Grace versus, let's be honest, she is a gal from Massachusetts, which means she is just as equally Marie Grace, if I may. Mm -hmm. I feel like being of the land where she resided in her formative years, I'm allowed to call her Marie Grace. I'm just like, I'm at a point where I'm going to keep trying the pronunciations at will. Maybe I retreat to an MG when I feel unsafe and then I'll come back. (laughs) So I don't really want to make any claims about what I will be doing going forward, but I am here. I'm into this. (laughs) I'm scared. And, you know, I'm ready. Let's do it. So conventionally, our third book would be our surprise. And what a surprise indeed (laughs) that we get from Marie Grace and the Orphans, which came out in 2011. But as we reiterated, is actually dedicated to a Beatrice born in 2022. Mm -hmm. Marie Grace can't believe what she finds, you won't either, on her doorstep one rainy night, a sweet little baby. More than anything, Marie Grace hopes her father will let the child stay with them. Then a stranger comes looking for the little boy, and Marie Grace realizes the baby is in terrible danger. Together, she and her friend Cecile come up with a plan to protect the child and to help the other orphans too. But when rumors of a terrible sickness begin to swirl in New Orleans, Marie Grace begins to worry. Will anyone truly be safe? No. No. Guess what? I'll answer that for you right now. Newsflash. You know who's really not safe after reading this book? Us. Us. I... I, as I told you off air, I met the end of this book with a silent scream into my pillow last night. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. Whew, it was rough. This is rough so stuff. Two things occurred to me completely by accident. Two novels that I have read in the past week prepared me for this book. If I may. Please tell me more. I am an inexplicably high-level devotee of the Reese Witherspoon book club. Can't oh, explain, God. won't explain, carrying on. So, her team highly recommended the book Lucky, so I picked it up immediately. I can say I'm like a, a mild milk toast recommend. That novel opens with a scene much like this one, which is a baby is found by a nun on a doorstep. Part one. Part two. Lucy Foley, my favorite thriller author, came out with a book called The Paris Apartment on 222, 2022. Had to have it immediately, got it within 24 hours at a bookstore. It's about shenanigans at a Paris apartment. Sounds great. I just wrote and down people, the title. Yeah. I. So where are you at with this? Like, what did this do for you? This book or those books? I guess those books. Like, how did it Not, prepare the way? <laughs> and also, are you how? Are, where are you at with the home edit? Because Reese just bought that. So is that now going to be part of your oeuvre? Or no. It's just the books. I I own one Draper James piece of clothing because it came in my triple F box that will not be named because they're not a sponsor yet. Okay. And I love it. I love it. Does it look good on me? No. Actually, I thought I about it. you because I went to Kohl's the other day. It was like the first time I've been to a store in months. And I know how much you don't love Kohl's. And Correct. I didn't know that they are a Draper James affiliate. So there's a Draper James section in Kohl's. Again, That's new. I have not been to Kohl's in like years. I was like walking around like I was freaked out by the lights. I was like, oh, my God, what is this place? Like, this is crazy. Nuts. Were you as freaked out as Marie Grace finding the baby? I'm going to say no, no, because she immediately thinks this is a great thing for her as a 10 year old. This is a book that's about saving a baby when the real child that needs saving is M.G. A.K. Marie Grace, A.K. Marie yeah. Grace. Yeah. She's not well, Allison. And guess what? Neither are we for reading this book. She's not well. And if you listened to our previous episode and you heard me avoiding the parrot's proper name, because I am actually not, in fact, able to parrot certain French words, wow. you know that that book ended with Cecile getting past a note from MG. MG has something to tell her. And we knew because we knew what the plot of this book was. We pick up here and we learn that it is May of 1853. And it is opening, it is thrusting us right on this moment where Marie Grace is finding this baby. Marie Grace immediately has um, 
some kind of like in-depth knowledge of colorism and how that will affect the future of this child. And she is able to formulate a plot together with her other 10-year-old friend to try to protect this child. Something I find very interesting about this book is the way that it narrows in on sort of orphanhood as the central issue because that's where the rest of the book goes. And I think I'm getting major Josefina vibes in that, like, these books star her but are not about her. Like, I think New yeah. Orleans was the star of book one, and orphans as a class of people are the stars of book three. I think that's a really great assessment because there is something about reading her books that's different than the Cecile books and every other series but Josefina. You're absolutely right. Where you read it and you're like, why do I feel like low-key sorry for her in a way that I don't for other Mm -hmm. American girls? Like even like Samantha, who is also an orphan. I mean, I guess Marie Grace is a half-orphan to use um, a phrase introduced to us in Peek into the Past. Um, which we can get into later, but it's because she doesn't get to be the center of her own story. I think that Mm -hmm. automatically displacement of her to the margins of books that are nominally about her makes her seem like she's disempowered in her own life because she's not even at the center of her own narrative. And, you know, like she's not really given a means to reclaim her narrative at any time. We see her casting about for meaning in her life through like trauma bond attempts with everyone and anyone in this book to a degree that was like actually disturbing to me because you know like we start out this book first of all we kind of knew what was going to happen because they give you a sneak peek in the previous book so like we saw maybe a few pages in the back of the last book but i did not know we would be engaging in engaging in colorism in the plot to ostensibly explore the problems of colorism question mark I'm not really sure what the purpose here was or like what the intent was, but we can get into that. But we find that there is a baby left on the front door. First of all, Mrs. Curtis, if that's her name. Okay. I called for this woman to be removed from her job last episode and I'm (laughs) doubling down. No, Allison, she was. Oh no, she's not the one. No, they hired Annie air quotes, Annie to do housework. And she got so exacerbated by this lady who's like, when she's not napping, she's like being nuts. And she left. This lady quits on like her first day or something. And Mrs. Curtis is like, I'm greeting that news with my own news that I'm going to go take a nap once again yes. for like the 500th time in this series. So she's like up napping. Marie Grace is like bopping around. Somebody knocks at the door, leaves a baby. And we see like with her, she looks out down the street and we see like the shadow of presumably the mother of this baby. Yes. And Marie Grace's response to this is like very strange to me. She's not concerned. She's not like scared. She's not freaked out. She almost acts like it's Christmas morning. She was like, great, great news. She's like, finally, I get to like have a brother again. He can be like my brother. And it's like, oh, God, like Marie Grace, I feel so sad for you. We also learn that the dog, the dog is kind of the first one to get on the case. Um And we have Marie Grace whispering, we'll see what it is. And then she looks. And I think for some, probably for all reason or many reasons, there is a heavy implication that the woman who has left him behind is a black woman, but it is not explicitly stated. Well, it's the illustrations invite you to make that connection because when the dad comes home, this is on page eight. And um, he asked Marie Grace, the woman who was on the corner, have you seen her before? Marie Grace bit her lip, trying to remember what the woman had looked like. Quote, I don't think so, she said at last, but it was dark and all I could tell was she was thin. Marie Grace thought for a moment. She had a kerchief around her head too, like the ones the women in the market wear. And then there's like an inset mini little illustration of a black woman wearing a headscarf. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And so if you haven't read the book, part of what kind of evolves over the course of it is Marie Grace kind of decides that she really wants this baby to be part of her life and her family's life. So she names the baby. She gets very invested in the baby. But she and Cecile and others have this ongoing conversation without stating so as to the race of the baby. 
and as to where the baby has come from. And I think there's a there's a very heavy implication in this book that the baby's mother is black and that the baby's father is white. And there is a question as to whether the baby can racially pass and basically make its way, make his way into a white driven orphanage. Like that is the central crisis of the book. Um, and we kind of explore this through like Marie Grace having conversations with his father, with her friend, Cecile, with kind of others, and she learns how to take care of the baby. But there's so much that's not said about the baby's race, but it's also the key, key part to understanding what's going on in this book. Yes. And so basically, like the big narrative of this book is about like the big challenge is that Marie Grace wants to get this baby into an orphanage run by nuns. And it's a fictional order, I think, of the Holy Trinity or something. It's not based. It's probably based on real orders that were in New Orleans at the in the period doing this work. But this specific orphanage is fictional. And it only accepts white orphans. So that presents a point of crisis. But to back up for a moment, like the dad automatically assumes he's like, yeah, the neighbor's going to nurse the baby. No Correct. problem. And presumably that woman is white. Then we get like the presumption. So Marie Grace automatically says like, I maybe he could be like my brother. It makes me feel like I have a mm -hmm. brother again. And so for her, like she has like a colorblindness to the baby that we can't tell if that's her colorblindness or the book's colorblindness to the baby, but she obviously understands that he's not white or he might end up not passing. So the crisis for her is like, how can I help him pass to get into this orphanage? And, but it's like, it presents or kind of elides the real racial distinctions and, um, biases that her dad would have had that this neighbor who's asked to be the wet nurse likely mm. would have had. So I think that that was kind of an interesting sleight of hand. Like the dad was like, yep, no problem. The neighbor will take care of him and this and that. So there is a scene too where just a few pages after that discovery, this is in the chapter, A Knock at Night, where Marie Grace actually holds herself up to the baby and essentially does a comparison of skin. Um, the baby's skin was about the same color as her own. But in New Orleans, there were so many different shades of skin color that it was sometimes hard to tell who was white and who was a person of color. And I do think something that the book does well is gets at the fact that there's not a black-white binary mm -hmm. in this community. Mm -hmm. It's not obvious what someone's background is. You can't judge their status based on melanin alone. What what really kind of like haunted me throughout a reading of this book is I follow this black genealogist on TikTok who's been going through his family records and contacting white people who are his ancestors mm. for their family records and making the point that their family records are his family records, mm -hmm. right? And that he has been cut from the family tree due to a variety of reasons, but mostly because of the fact that his ancestors were considered black and theirs were considered white, despite sharing a family. And it's really kind of, and I'm, I'm not necessarily criticizing this book. It is so haunting to think that a child could have found one of your ancestors and made a decision by holding their arm up to that baby's arm and saying, I am willing this baby to be white. And we can read that now in a white supremacist society as she is helping him. But there's these little hints, right? And again, it's not explicitly stated in a way that's clear. Marie Grace smells coconut when the baby first arrives. And then she sees that there's a coconut salve. And again, you're meant to make this assumption that like other healers in the book, this is coming from a black woman or a black family. It is really so disturbing to think that this did happen. This kind of thing did happen to babies and to people where that mother may have been making her best possible choice, mm -hmm. which was giving this child a different life and also basically ending severing her connection to that child letting him pass in the sense of like a spiritual death from her life it is such an emotional thing and you're on page 10 page 12 and i thought is this is this what we're doing yes it is i mean it, it is what we're doing and in a sense like you can kind of make 
an argument that this is one of the American Girls in which we see the main character be most empowered. I know I was just saying earlier, she's on the margins of her own story, and I don't think she has power over her own narrative. But like you're saying, she we do make her we do watch her make two really formative decisions Huge. about this baby's life. Like you just described that first scene where she's just comparing their skin color. And then later, essentially, she's at the orphanage. She started to like the baby was accepted through means that we can discuss. But she can't let go of their connection and wants to still act like he's her brother. So she's going there after school to play with the baby and all the orphans and a woman there wants to take him to Chicago to a different orphanage where the likelihood of him being adopted is high. And the nun says, sister B says, you know, like, is your dad, can your dad truly not find the mom? Or like, is there no reason to hope the mom will return? And she originally, she makes a decision originally to lie about that. And is like, yeah, like he thinks the mom might come back. You know, so you probably shouldn't let the baby go to Chicago. And then at the only at the very last, like truly last minute, is she like, um, I was lying. Sorry. Like, it's fine. But part of so part of why that's so hugely significant and you're right about her power relative to this baby is that the the lie has major implications because disease has come to town and mm-hmm. people in her community at that time mapped fitness to survive the disease onto race mm-hmm. and so lying about his race or his background she literally is playing with his life and as you're talking something that i keep kind of thinking about is again this is book three what do the girls always receive in book three in the historical canon they get a doll mm-hmm. Marie Grace doesn't get a doll. She gets a person. And it really is kind of striking when you think about the different ways that we know people. Alva Vanderbilt is an example. Young white girls and boys who are presented with people as gifts. And I think even with a 10 years or so distance, you think about it. This is where like white savior complexes come from. I know the last time we talked about this with Samantha, we got the podcast review. I didn't know American Girls was a socialist podcast. It's not a socialist podcast comment to say this is where baggage that white women have to deal with on their own time comes from, Mm -hmm. right? Stories like this that come from history, real white people being given a black child or a child whose origin we don't exactly know to quote save. Like that's, that's what Marie Grace think she is doing and it's sort of heartbreaking because you think that's going to change the trajectory of her life but far more importantly until this little boy Phillips like fifth sixth seventh great grandkids take a DNA test that familial connection may never come back for him yeah and it is it is really striking to think about it's just now with a lot of like the implementation or integration of DNA into ancestry, you know, technologies that people are sort of like unearthing this or getting into the records that they've had access to for the first time. And yeah, I mean, it is, it is striking to see the decisions that she makes. And I also think there's a psychological component to it. I mean, the fact that she keeps returning to her mother and her brother's death, I think, Hmm. What we're seeing is like, yeah, she lives in a culture where people are obsessed with death. Like it's it's in their lives. Like so many people in this period would know someone who died, you know, from an illness or just younger than we might expect today and have to walk with that grief through the rest of their lives. And we don't see that she has a coping mechanism. No, there's no we don't see any scenes where she's like, wow, I'm really thinking about mom with this. You know, I'm thinking about my brother. This baby's reminding me of my brother. These are conversations she's having with herself. And that made me kind of sad because it's like, you know, the dad is really busy building his practice or whatever he's doing. And Mrs. Curtis is napping, as we know. And, you know, she doesn't really have anyone else. And that's where, like, the trauma bonding, I think, comes up that's really sad to watch, where she's kind of investing a lot of meaning into relationships that we now know from having been in Cecile's headspace or point Mm. of view aren't as meaningful to Cecile or don't seem to be taking up as much like emotional real estate. Like there's a point in this book where Cecile, where Marie Grace is like, 
yeah, I can't wait to see like, you know, uh, the singing teacher and Cecile and Louie, the guy who watches my dog while I take my singing lesson. She's like, we're like our own little family. And it's like, ah, like, okay, but you're not. And what does that mean about how you're processing like what's happening in your family of origin? I don't know. There's a lot going also, on. To think that she and this baby are actually both as much orphans as each other, and by that I mean they're both only missing one parent, presumably, or or maybe maybe both of this baby's parents are actually alive, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at the uses of the word orphan in the 19th century, the huge, huge shift and like mind shift that happens is from thinking of an orphan as a child or a person with dead parents to a person with absent parents. Mm. And we know that like with in the wake of the Civil War, there's this even further shift of basically declaring parents unfit and then taking black children away from black families and kind of like crises of reunification. She and this child are not so different in some ways in that regard, but we don't really think of her as an orphan in the same way, really even as a Samantha, right, who's missing both of her parents. There is still a white man to take care of Marie Grace. There is a woman who in theory should be able to like mother and love Philip, but because of society, he's an orphan. Right, right. And that's a change that happens, right? Like she has to make a decision and drop this baby off to strangers and kind of hope for the best. And you wonder if you're supposed to kind of guess that she has some kind of knowledge about what he's like as a doctor because he's helped other black children in the community but you're kind of just grasping for that there's really no evidence yeah we're told he's basically been practicing for like five or six weeks or something like not that long period no. of time and basically at one point marie grace says to cecile oh cecile's like oh your dad like what's going on here and she was like oh my dad's a doctor like he's like so many like people trust him around new orleans and come mm -hmm. to him and it's like is this like some hype game where you're just sort of manifesting <laughs> that that will be true like that's part of the dad's pr program because you know in the first book she was the dad was really struggling to get his practice going so it's really hard to know what's happening with this practice well, and I think clearly that's going to come into play again, like disease becomes a big part of like the last at least third of this book. It becomes explicitly stated that people are getting ill and that's where it's interesting. There's a lot of conversations about immunity with Mary Grace and her father about the fact that like they are pretty much safe. Mm -hmm. Like I wonder if you could talk about, I feel like so much of that was actually mapped onto race. Yeah. And I think Cecile gets that and Cecile talks about that. But in Marie Grace's mind, it's like, oh, well, we're okay because we've we're, had it before. We've had it. But the real conversation was quite different. Yeah. I don't really think it was that common. And I do think that there's something going on where the plot of the book actually is, is inverting what the conversation of disease would be. So like to get Phillips into the white orphanage Marie Grace needs to appeal to Cecile. That's what the note is about that we learned about in the last book. Right. And it it also just makes no sense that she would scrawl this note and be like, 911, like, help me. And then <laughs> yeah. when she finally gets to talk to her, she's like, this is the situation. Like, we don't know how she described it to Cecile, but she was like, I need some assistance. And it really does feel like she's going to Cecile, not because she's her friend, but because she's black. And I don't really, you know, that's like a complicated exchange. But Cecile is like, yep, definitely want to help you. My aunt has some nice baby clothes for my cousin. And she ends up like giving Marie Grace to keep like a very nice baby mm. outfit that almost works too well. And then the priest at the orphanage is like, I don't know, he's from a rich family. So I don't know. But so in the same way that Marie Grace or in a different way that Marie Grace is deferring or investing a lot of prestige into Cecile and her family, who clearly are wealthy, in conversations about yellow fever, both in New Orleans and in the South and just generally at this period, a lot of disease, not just yellow fever, is pathologized involving conversations about race. So mm -hmm. if you are a non-white person, you are much more likely to be blamed for the spread or the carrying disease than white communities. And a lot of this has to do with conversations about hygiene and cleanliness. And we see this going back to conversations about cholera in New York in the 1830s. We see it with cholera in New Orleans. We see it with yellow fever mm -hmm. 
in Cuba, when Walter Reed is there doing the experiments that will lead to understanding what actually causes yellow fever, there is still this hugely racialized component, even to those experiments. Um, so, you know, I think it's interesting that it's like it's implied in the books, but it'd be interesting if it was more explicit, because I think in the times it would have been. Yeah. And I think something that comes out is like that class is seen as sort of the protection, right? Like that really is the Band-Aid. And we have this conversation with the richer girls, Lavinia and Sofrina. And um, they're complaining because it's hot, they're uncomfortable, they're sort of irritated. Um, And we have Lavinia saying, well, my papa's not afraid and says we're staying. He reads the newspapers and he says there are no reports of the fever. Like, there is a straight line from Lavinia to COVID denial, but we don't need to go there. <laughs> I was thinking All the that talk yeah. is just plain foolishness. And uh, Marie Grace says, I wish the talk of yellow fever were just foolishness, but Papa says it isn't. And what's fascinating, too, is like there is that cognitive dissonance that we know because we've been living through COVID that's so real. They're having this conversation as if there aren't literally bodies like at a much higher rate being brought down the street. Right. Like caravans of the dead. And they're still like, well, I don't know. My dad says. And they have signs that people are literally shutting things down because they can't function. And I think we've lived through that Mm -hmm. cognitive dissonance. I followed someone um, through the pandemic on Twitter who lives near a crematorium. And she would post about just like the extent to which it was busy that she had never seen before. And then the next tweet would be denying Mm -hmm. that anything had changed or like, is this really serious? So... I think this book absolutely gets that right where people are fishing around for what might be happening, for for what might be going on. Yeah, and I think the really funny kind of moment, but it strikes to a true place, is where Mrs. Curtis at one point says to me, Grace, like, I want you to carry this head of garlic with you when you walk down the street because this is going to keep you from getting yellow fever. And it's like our iconic queen, like practicing folk medicine based on absolutely no science. But I mean, you can see conduits to that today. Yeah. You know, where people are saying like, oh, well, if you just insert non-helpful treatment or preventative measure for COVID here, you know, these kind of understandings, I think, are fueled in part by people's real panic and fear and grasping Mm -hmm. for a sense of having control over something that seems by definition uncontrollable. And, you know, there's something that happens when we read about medicine in the past where you find yourself screaming at them to be like, don't you know it's mosquitoes? Like in this case, and the text is hitting it over the head because it's like Marie Grace wakes up under her mosquito net. She has to wear gloves to bed because she's scratching her bite so much. And, you know, it does fill you with panic because we know something that she doesn't know. Um, But, you know, if you're trying to imagine yourself back in that time and you have no idea what's causing it, it's interesting that we don't see an overt discussion of what's causing it in this book. Cause Mm -hmm. I do think that that was happening. Like if you read John Pintard's diary, like he's a rich snob who's speculating every single day about what's happening. And for him, it's dirt in the city, it's filth, it's uncleanliness, it's immigrants, Mm -hmm. it's people of color that he maps all of this onto those same changes in the city were happening in new Orleans in this period And it's interesting that there's like no conversation about any of that, that people we're seeing the panic, but not the speculation about the panic. And we're seeing a folk preventative measure, but no conversation around what it's actually preventing like harm Mm -hmm. from. So I do think that it is somewhat kind of like trying to have it both ways a little bit, or it's not really giving us the ugliness of the past, but in this case would be the truth of the past. I will say I really recommend a book that I think does this so well, um, Anatomy by Dana Schwartz, and she's the voice behind the Noble Blood podcast. She writes, produces everything. It's a really fantastic show. In Anatomy, it's called Anatomy, a Love Story. It's about uh, resurrection men and women who would dig up bodies, Mm. right, and who would provide them to medical students around the time that Frankenstein was written. And that's kind of bleeds into the story a bit as well. So if you love Frankenstein, you will really like this book. But essentially, a young woman who wants to study medicine and is kept out of medical school gets together with a resurrection boy so she can have access to people to study. And she Mm. ends up creating her own kind of folk medicine to treat the Roman fever, as they're calling it, and, Mm. and kind of has her own ways. But 
it's a book that I think it's a YA novel really beautifully gets into the psyche of a person dealing with disease Mm. in a way that I did not find upsetting despite still living from COVID, right? Like living through COVID. And I think that's a really tough balance. There were parts of this book and other books I have read recently where I was like, I don't want to hear this. Like when she's walking through and things were shutting down, it was like, I don't, I don't want to read this. And I also absolutely respect that when this was being researched and written 10 plus years ago, I think there was a lot of hubris that we would never be shut down by a pandemic mm. or endemic again. And and I, I do believe that. I think, right, we were still coming off of like some Obama highs. And I think when this was mm. researched, there probably was a thought of like, we would never be shut down or this blindsided by disease again and we were wrong yeah i think that's totally true and i also i kind of read this with some nostalgia in a sense like Mm -hmm. wow remember when people took medical like pandemics seriously like ooh, those were heady times because you know i work in a place and i know a lot of people who are in the situation where you know people are just deciding like it's over And the Mm -hmm. facts don't support that, but you're in this situation where you're being asked to engage in magical realism with everyone around you. Like, okay, we don't need masks anymore. And it's like, actually, that doesn't seem to be true. But then it puts you in this weird position, right, where you have to say, like, well, I actually don't think the facts support that and people will gaslight you about this. So in a sense, seeing her walk around the city and having people be not panicked, but definitely taking prevent what they view as preventative measures. I was like, wow, remember those days when you didn't have to convince people to, you know, be careful. I, I just think we haven't changed that much, right? It's like there's parts of the city that are totally shutting down. And then there's also a scene in this book where she's like, gee whiz, like, like basically scene to scene, she's like super excited to find out that her music teacher is engaged to her uncle. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. And then in the next scene, her music teacher divulges that her friend has passed and she has to take care of someone and all of these other things. Mm. I think something this book gets right is that you imagine a pandemic as a massive pause button and it's just not. It's total chaos and everything else seems to continue except for there's people debilitated by disease. And I think book four is when that is going to hit us. Uh But this, this book took me back to like March and April of 2020, where all of these certain pockets of things seem to still be happening. And then other things seem to have shut down completely. And I think through the point of view of a 10 year old, it's effective to say like, wait, is this happening because of this? Is this happening because of this? And she is insightful enough, I think, to know that her father is going to be heavily involved. Like, if she thought they were getting one-on-one time before, it's never happening now. No, 100% not. And it's interesting that, like, I think something you can see in this book, too, is that when a pandemic hits or there's a medical crisis, like, everyone's bringing their own experience to that moment, whether it's Mm. experience with a comparable disease or death in your family or serious illness. So it's like, you know, of course, Marie Grace is thinking about her mother and her brother who have passed. And of course, like the dad is not thinking about it or he's not talking about it with her. I'm sure he's probably privately thinking about it. It's just interesting. And like the the singing teacher was interesting because when she tells us she's getting married, which, you know, we're maybe on record saying that's something to pump your brakes on at this point. <laughs> You know, she kind of gets into this conversation where she's like, yeah, I'm waiting for my dad to approve from France. So that's going to be a couple of weeks with the mail. But, you know, and somebody was like, I think it was Cecile was like, what do you mean you're planning to get married in late summer? She was like, that's a horrible idea. Like, we all know that's the least healthy time to be here. Some people leave. And her response is like, well, we plan to be year round residents. Like, we're not like you and some others. I mean, Cecile's family is year round, but we're not like elite families who just like pick up and leave in the summer. We're going to be here. So it's all going to be cool. And it's like, but we have not been told that she's lived through yellow fever successfully. Like we've been told that Marie Grace and her dad have. No. So everyone else in my mind, like I'm on a watch list where I'm like, I'm scared because this is really setting up every character we've met in this book to be like, he was just approaching the happiest time in his life. And it's like, Oh God, he's dead. Like, you know, you don't know. So I feel like Argos is probably in danger. I also feel as <gasps> the though dog? The, 
I'm just saying, I feel as though the servant who left the family, she's coming back. Annie? That's, oh, wow. That's Chekhov's servant. She's coming back. Wow, okay. Why, why did we learn as much as we did for her to not come back? I'm pretty nervous about Mademoiselle, you know, just to flex my French for a second. I'm nervous for Lavinia because I think that this book punish this series punishes some people um i am finding it fascinating that other girls close to this period like kirsten got kittens quilts and like a family barn party in book four and these girls are gonna go through disease mm-hmm. yeah with mosquitoes um yeah. what what did you make of what i think are pretty extensive scenes of marie grace playing with children in the orphanage like what was kind of your like this is not annie i will say that it's not annie i mean it's a very like romanticized depiction of orphan life and all we're basically told is that this catholic order is running this orphanage the nuns under the leadership of sister b are Mm -hmm. you know keeping house keeping everything together and there's basically just a lot of recreation time like marie grace can bop over after school on tuesdays and thursdays hang out with whomever she chooses there's hide and seek games she's teaching people dominoes like we're seeing all kinds of stuff but you know that did give me pause because what we know of orphanages in that period does not suggest it was a four-star resort experience no like what did you how did it hit you it it honestly it just made me so sad to be honest because i think the peek into the past does get into this really well as you're saying with the half orphans it's like these are people who probably have parents and they probably have siblings Mm -hmm. and they probably have other people who care about them and the peek into the past rightfully points out that most orphanages were constructed for white children, at least in certain contexts, and then some were established separately, um, including one in New Orleans by a black order just for black children. Um, just kind of knowing what I know and the fact that there were white supremacist attacks on orphanages in the 19th century, like the famous 1863 mob attack, um, like just to think of like the most vulnerable in society, right? Like disease is coming through in a major way. These children are all living together. I think in a lot of ways, um, one, one of our listeners shared with us uh, a one-star review of one of the Courtney books and the fact that mm. HIV is brought up in the context of that book. And the parent essentially said in this one-star review, like, these books aren't supposed to go there. They're not supposed to be about these really dark, heavy topics. And this listener said, like, okay, so she doesn't know about Marta. But I would argue, like, a lot of these books have really heavy topics about trauma and difficulty, disease, death. And I think the Samantha book struck that chord really well, where we got a sense of Nellie is in danger. Like, the Mm -hmm. orphanage is not okay. Nellie is in danger. Nellie's life is about to go off track. And how does Samantha be a good friend and use her privilege? And I think choosing to have Marie Grace really latch on to this baby boy in a book that typically would be about a girl and a doll, I think it's really telling about things a lot of us just still haven't fully unpacked about like white people relative right. to others, right? Right. Like rescue narratives and all these things. Yeah, I mean, for her, it's like literally something she plays with. It, it's, yeah. it stands in for a doll. Like that makes total sense. And it's not in a sense, like she is so attached to him and in flags, like things that she thinks he likes or dislikes, like he loves flowers. She says to the nun when he's first there, like sister B, like he loves flowers. He loves like, I forget what else. And the nun says something to the effect of like, oh, we'll make a note of that. So we make sure that like he gets that. And that part really bummed me out because it's like no one in an orphanage in this period is getting individualized attention. Like, it's just no. not happening. And it's it's in large part because, like, we're only a decade or something out or two decades out from, like, the establishment of what were called, like, retreats or insane asylums of, you know, different kinds of prisons, of orphanages, like, these institutions that were, some would say, meant to contain and discipline people who don't, like, air quotes, fit into society. Some would say, like, there was attempts at moral treatment and care. So I'm sure it was a sliding scale, but, you know, so not to speak too broadly, but from what we know, it's like, this was not going to be 
you know, like the Brady Bunch for Philip. No, and to that end, you know, you have to kind of respect that Marie in her own mind, like, thinks she's doing the right thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, she she, she is 10 years old, <laughs> like this character. I, I found it so sort of shocking, the conversation that Marie Grace and Cecile are having. Um, remember when we changed places at the Mardi Gras ball? Everyone looked at our costumes, not at us. And, and that's where the concept comes from, right? right? To clothe him and to provide the blanket in a really specific way. Um, and I think in some ways that absolutely gets the notion of passing correct. And in a lot of ways could lead to some slippery and inaccurate thinking, like the expression, the clothes make the man. It's like, okay, to a point. Right. right. Like, yeah. I mean, I think it kind of speaks to the general view of race in this book, which to me seems childlike, like in the sense that they genuinely can believe in that conversation that race is a is almost like clothing that you put on and can take right. off, at least for Marie Grace. I don't think Cecile understands that, understands it that no. way. But Cecile also like kind of from nowhere at one point is like, my grandpa would never own slaves. And it's like, OK, maybe like I, but we've also seen in these books in a way that was interesting and complicated things that free black people did enslave others in New Orleans. So absolutely, there is like this voice in the book. That's like, no one in this book is racist. Right. No one in this book is bad. No one in this book is racist. The nuns have a pure disinterest in taking care of a child that they don't know. Um, And I think, again, it's not to just criticize the book for its own sake, but even reading it, you can kind of get into this false sense of like, oh, of course, like going to this one orphanage over the other is better for him. And it's useful to kind of ask yourself, like, well, why was it better? Why am I assuming? Why are we all assuming in the universe of this book that this treatment is better There is a really good short study by Christy Clark Pujara, who is a historian of Rhode Island, about early, early benevolent societies in New England, and she focuses on Rhode Island. And she writes about how elite white women, a lot of whom got their money from textiles, would start these organizations like baby rescues, air quotes, Hmm. in black communities. And what ended up happening was this group of women basically said, like, you know, we can take care of our children, right? Like we just actually need like a little bit of support. Like we actually don't want you to take our children. And this benevolent society ended up turning into basically a very, very early daycare where it was like, Mm. no, these people don't want to give their children away. They want white people to finance a system that makes it possible for them to be parents the way that they need to be parents. Um, And she does this brilliant job of showing through letters and different things the way that the institution got transformed that's a pretty rare occurrence right like right this baby goes into the system and this baby is not coming back to that mother probably definitely probably not and i was interesting i was looking in chronicling america and i found an article from the period in i think like either a mississippi or a new orleans newspaper where there was a short story imagining a an irish washerwoman who had eight children and put them on an orphanage because she couldn't work to survive mm-hmm. and take care of her own children and you know they're doing it to lampoon like the rising immigrant population in these areas But it also points, like you're saying, to a need that's never met, which is like what's needed isn't for her potentially to lose all her children, but to get support so that she can work outside the home to pay for her life and this and her children. So, you know, it is kind of like you do scream sometimes reading this stuff like, wow, like not not much has changed in terms of how these particular needs are getting met and also who's needing who's meeting these needs like in the book right. and in the story you described the article you described it's private organizations like where's the state in any of this stuff so we have a friend and i wrote to her and i said okay i need like now a few recommendations on the best books to read about nuns or convents and orphanages and within an hour she wrote back and she was like two books Spirited Lives by Carol Coburn, which is a UNC press book. So it is more of an academic-y type book, but fantastic study of nuns and culture, 1836 to 1920. And she also recommended American Catholic Lay Groups and Transatlantic Social Reform by Deidre Maloney. 
I did a little bit of research for this episode by looking at the story of um, Marie Hachard, uh, which is about the Ursulines, because that's kind of, I think, what's like hinted at in this mm. book, but the Ursulines are not really brought up until peek into the past. And that's called Voice from an Early American Convent. You can actually like read her story, um, and there's a bit about disease in there as well. Hmm. What did you learn from checking those out? Um, so obviously like that, that's more of like a reprinted primary source. So it isn't like Marie was all about discipline and control, you know, but, um, I think part of what I recommend, why I'm recommending these books is I think like Catholicism also looks really different in this book than what we experienced with Josefina. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of kept at an arm's length in this book, right? Like, Marie Grace is both someone who is attending a certain kind of school because of faith and is someone that is kind of like interacting with these places as like a place of wonder. Like it's not really seen as part of like her culture in a meaningful way. And I don't think we learn anything about Cecile. Um, but part of what I was looking for in the voice from an early convent was how does she talk about disease, right? And there's like not infrequent mentions of people getting fevers and people having these different kinds of experiences. I also think as with everything, it's like, and New Orleans was different, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's always like, and New Orleans was different, which I think is part of what's coming out in this book with like avoiding a sort of black-white binary but think about what we learned in Addie, right? Addie being set a decade later. There are so many worlds in which, like, the baby that Addie loves so much in those books, there are so many timelines where that baby gets called an orphan. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And she's not, right? So I think it's kind of interesting to put those in dialogue with each other where it's like, from Marie Grace's point of view, Philip is an orphan, mm -hmm. straight up. He's an abandoned baby. But if you were to think, like, if Addie and her mother like had to do that for some reason, we get this whole other interior world where that baby is thought of so differently. Yeah, I think that's very true. I also, it struck me that there's no conversation about faith in these books from Marie Grace's right. perspective. And I do think that in a time of stress or trauma, like, and even just dealing with her grief, I think that was be something that we could reasonably expect she would turn to, whether it was, you know, if she's Catholic saying the rosary, like, you know, her maybe like her reader or whatever. And, and even I, it really struck me in the conversation with the nun where she has to tell her that essentially she's lied to her because basically yeah. we present, she presents that as a mistake that she's made and she apologizes. But if you're Catholic and you're speaking to someone who represents the church, like that's a really different conversation because, <laughs> you know, it's not like, Hey, sorry, my bad. Won't do it again. It's like, um, you know, oh my God, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. Like, you know, you would see contrition, not from a nun, of course, but I mean, she would go to confession. Like there would be a, some understanding of this as, as a sin or some part of her spiritual life. And that doesn't happen, which is really interesting. No, but I mean, she's, she's Marie the Great, AKA Mary full of grace. I mean, <sighs> yeah, she sure is. She sure is. She has enough on her plate right now, but you know, it's like the, I don't believe this is not like a cloistered convent. I mean, they're out in the world, no. they're raising kids and like taking care of kids and doing God knows what else, like teaching and, you know, caring for the community probably in a whole host of ways. But it's interesting that it's like, it's, it feels like they're cloistered from us, from the reader, because we don't really see much personality. We don't really see any interactions with Marie Grace other than like, okay, yeah, we'll make a note that he likes flowers. Thank you. Like, you know, that's kind of it. Like, I would like to see more of their lives. I would love to know what they look like. This is also such a world in which, like, <laughs> it's such a commercial, like, television commercial type world where it's like, gee, gosh, these parents are so behind these 10-year-olds. These 10-year-olds, like, they know the right kind of peanut butter to buy. They know that they actually need egos for dinner. It's like the kids are way ahead on the curve. And I think that's also why the orphanage is not really presented as a space of trauma, but as like a hangout. Yeah. Like I got the vibe that she, like if you knew kids whose parents or caretakers couldn't pick them up right when school was over. So there was like a hang space where people would watch you for pay. 
Like, that's the vibe that I got where she was like, oh, school's out. Dad's not going to miss me. I'm going to hang with these kids. And they think she's really cool as opposed to resenting what she has, which is kind of interesting. Because even Samantha and Nellie experienced that friction where Nellie's like, yeah, you're really rich and, like, you didn't invite me to your birthday party. <laughs> Oof, never I mean, forget. actually, I projected that scene, but... Fair. Yeah. Fair enough. But, yeah, I mean, it is weird. And it also strikes me as weird that in this book, yet again, we have many scenes where she's just bopping around the city by herself with her dog. 100%. And this is after Cecile has basically, you know told her not to do this or was like yeah that's odd i'm not allowed out without like my maid or like some adult and she's like yeah cool interesting i'll take note of that and then she's (laughs) like here i am again like walking around the city alone because my dad's like doing god knows what i think mademoiselle ocean is probably on to her but she's also dropped hints that like she knows about the full family real estate and as is very classic with american girl it's like yeah we also own this other island like we also own this other place. Don't worry about it. Don't ask where that money came from. Don't ask any questions it. of why we own an estate outside of the city. Because everyone here is good. Everything We're is good. good. It's all fine. Don't panic. Dad's fine. I'm fine. It's <laughs> fine. It's you know. I think by next book we're gonna be in the heat of summer, literally. Oh God, I'm not prepared for deaths in this series, so. I think Luke may not make it. That's a prediction that I have. I don't really feel. Well, he's great already about pretty Luke. absent. I'm not really attached to him. Armand, Luke and Armand, I think are maybe not going to get together because of the timeline and the pretend marriage. But I have a feeling that Trousseau is going to end up like overboard, or it's going to be cashed in for a funeral. That's well, my prediction. That was my feeling too, because they kind of did what Lifetime would do, which is like heavily emphasize an event that will never take place because of mm-hmm. a tragedy that's about to happen. So when um, Madame as well, Madame was well, oh God. Um, <laughs> bonjour. Oh, bonjour. Excusez-moi. Um, when... <laughs> She says, like, oh, you should take this blue, like, fabric and turn it into a blanket for the baby. She has to explain where Cecile steps in, of course, to explain what a trousseau is because she knows she's, like, hep on everything cool. And it's, like, the the degree of description of what a trousseau is and what <laughs> matters. You're, like, oh, God, like, this trousseau, it's going to get made and it will never have a purpose. That's my oh. prediction. I don't want to be right about this. I hope I'm wrong, but I'm just saying, why are we hearing so much about this? Bridal Trousseau, never used. Tragedy in four words. I, I think Yeah. I think we're going there. Um, we've survived a dark and stormy night with Marie Grace. Yeah. And the orphans, plural. Didn't even really think we needed plural. I think I will just also say this, dear listeners, if I was a boy, I was gonna be named Philip. Really? Yep. So Philip was my boy name. Correct. Wow. So this was like, this was hard for you. My brother and sister each got to pick a name. My sister picked Allison. My brother picked Philip. And what about Beth? Beth Beth was also my sister's choice. She got to pick both names? Yep. I was going to be PJ or Philip John if I was a boy. Wow. Well, next episode will be entirely in French. Oh, God, that's not going to go well. I'll just be like, I will be represented by a Google Translate robot voice (laughs) and I'll have to be translating Um, in real time. You know, it works on before the 90 days and 90 day fiance. So I think it can work for us. I honestly, like when I watched Lupin, which I really enjoyed on Netflix, I was like, whew, maybe this is when I actually learned French. It's going to (laughs) happen. Like when I went to Paris and I was like, I love it here. This is amazing. I want to live here someday. And I was like, ooh, would have to learn French. Hmm. But maybe this is the time. I don't know, Alice. Emily says no. Emily in Paris says no. So Emily she in doesn't Paris know says French. No. That's a distinctive part of her character, that she's an American wow. who aggressively does okay. not know French. So, like, American exceptionalism is still still kicking in France. It's still alive and well. And I'll also say, like, after much listener feedback, we are doing a Patreon, Patreon wow. episode on The Midwife's Apprentice. So we are going to the medieval area era just for you all. Wow. Language is slippery. That's what I've learned. Language is slippery. You know, I, I'm prepared for this. I thought I was going to be a medievalist. Again, I would have had to learn French and probably Latin. And so that probably held me back amongst some other life decisions, but I'm, I'm not ready for this, but I'm also been preparing my whole life. I'm thrilled. I'm excited. I'm excited to get another book from Cecile's POV 
to go through this entire series. Now is the time. I think we both have some ideas of what we would like to learn outside of these books. Mardi Gras history, yep. Yellow Fever history. Yep. We have names. We have ideas circulating. But write to us. Like, if you're a Mardi Gras expert, this is your moment. Or call us. I mean, now that I'm, like, back on this, like, yeah, I'm listening. If you want to send me beignets, you may do that as well. My God, I would love that. Actually, I'm deep in Cadbury egg season, mini eggs. Oh. You know, have you ever had the mini chocolate eggs from Cadbury? You know, I don't even know that I want to go here because we got a lot of flack for our peep joke last year. I don't even remember that. See, like, I just block out stuff. I just move <laughs> on. Don't. I just move on. Like, you, you, you're you holding on to stuff. Like, you're the institutional memory of stuff that we probably should let go or forget. Whereas yeah, I'm basically, yeah. like, genuinely not even, like, philosophically tr- choosing to let it go. I probably have low-key Alzheimer's at this point. I'm just like, oh, right. Yeah, okay. I so vaguely remember that. Your mademoiselle thinking you're marrying Marie Grace's uncle yep at this point like that's the level that you're at i'm like i'm in a romanticized place in my life in this <laughs> podcast like i'm eating just like if anyone else is out there is honest like mini cadbury eggs allison this is like where it's at it hits different it is better than m&ms it is like i can't keep i cannot be around them and i cannot be around them right now like that's my season that's my truth and I did see on CBS Sunday Morning, which is my favorite TV show, they did a story on King Cakes, which obviously you and I know about from Casey. Of course. But there was the most disturbing image I've ever seen. I meant to take a screen grab. I'll have to find it. But they interviewed a bunch of bakers in New Orleans about how many different types of king cake there are. And it was, like, really interesting. And this, like, Vietnamese immigrant who was like, I make my own king cake. And it's like, I'm part of this. And she won a James Beard Award and whatever. But they go to these other guys and he's like, of course, we put the baby into all of the king cakes. He holds up a bag. It's a plastic bag filled with just tiny baby figures that are going to go into king cakes. And just that image alone, I was like, I can't sleep after this. No. I ate some Cadbury eggs to feel safe. Like, I had to get through it. But... You don't get that with Reese's Cups. It doesn't do that to you. But it you doesn't. don't have the rich complexity and history you and sure connection don't. to Mari Grace and, and all these other things. So if people need to talk to you about, I'm going to call it like mini egg season. I don't really know okay, thank you. what else to call it. How should they find so you? So please, you know, call me, beat me if you want to reach me. Like find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123 or, you know, I guess like wherever these days. But um, Allison, if people want to talk to you about like potential names that, you know, the road not taken with their names, you know, what their snack of choices during Mardi Gras, like where can you be found? You can reach us in all of the ways, including telephone, P.O. box right on our website for American Girls podcast. But you can find me at Allison Horrocks on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find the show on Facebook. And if you look us up at a girl's pod on Linktree, that's where you'll find everything else. A quick link to our tea public store, our Libro FM, all those other things. Um, we look forward to hearing from you. I promise I will never pick up the phone when you call. It does go right to voicemail but maybe you'll hit me when i'm in market basket which is what happened to me last week so who knows hit you where you live um that's right and i just want to say like we just passed our three-year anniversary thanks everyone who stayed with us and i was wearing allison our sweatshirt yesterday like i wear our merch like i have a sweatshirt i'm too embarrassed to wear out of the house because if anyone identified me i'd feel like insane or like no you should too extra but i just want to say like again we make basically nothing off the merch but like it's such a comfortable sweatshirt like for real I, I need to get one that I will wear out of the house it's not like the giant logo because I just I don't want to be called <laughs> out I'm paranoid but anyway thanks to everyone who's listened who stayed with us who's told their friends maybe I'll see you out in the streets in my sweatshirt I don't know I don't know anymore that's right <laughs>